0: And good morning, I'm Paul Joyner, one of the pastors here. Um, If you're joining with us today, we are working our way through the book of Revelation. And if you are um, new to the Bible, um, we have printed the text for you on page 9 of your worship guide. And whether you're watching online or here with us, if you don't have a Bible, please let us know. We would love to get you um, a Bible free to you um, to have God's Word in your home. Revelation chapter 3, starting with verse 7. This is God's word. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write the words of the Holy One, the true One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. That I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance. I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming. On the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have. So that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers. I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never. Shall he go out of it? And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is God's word. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, the one who sits on your throne having died to sin and risen to righteousness you have the power of the new creation at your disposal and so by your word make the deserts of our hearts spring with flowers make things bloom that would not bloom apart from your grace transform us, change us Draw us mostly near to you. Give us hope and courage. By your gospel, we pray. In your name, amen. Well, the postman is carrying these letters to the seven churches through trade routes in Eastern Asia, what is modern-day Turkey, or Western Asia, what is modern-day Turkey. And what's clear from these first few chapters is that Jesus loves his church and interacts with her with a deep level of intimacy. Frequently, he says, I know you. I know your works. But each church is faced with a temptation to compromise. It's difficult to follow Jesus in any time, in any place. There was no ideal place to be a follower of Jesus. He made it clear, just as the world hates me, it will hate you too. And so the church in Thyatira, as we had seen just a few stops before, gave in to the culture. It compromised. She gave in to the pressure. The church in Sardis gave in as well, but she gave in in a different way. She looked alive on the outside, but Jesus says, I know you. You're like a zombie. You're walking around dead on the inside, orthodox but spiritually asleep. But this church in Philadelphia has, has a different word to receive. This is one of the few churches that Jesus, actually one of the only two churches, that Jesus doesn't rebuke in these seven letters. Instead he says to her, you have an opportunity in front of you you can't take a defensive posture for verse 8 i have set before you an open door now an open door in the new testament is synonymous most of the time for gospel witness gospel opportunities opportunities that jesus opens for us to tell others about the life transforming truth of the gospel even in midst a culture that's pressing down on the church, trying to get it to conform. That where the church finds itself, even in hostile position, no longer fitting in. Jesus says, you got to stay on mission, I've opened doors for you. But here's where the opportunity for most of us stalls out. Because it does stall out. Because Jesus may be opening doors, or maybe better said, Jesus is opening doors. He's opening doors as the one who has the keys because he's seated on God's throne. There are doors all over the place. But we are not always willing to walk through it. And we have to ask why. And I think the answer for most of us is because it is always risky. It's never safe and it's never easy. And we have this insatiable desire to belong. And the corresponding fear of being rejected and put on the outsider. It's every teenager's ambition to be accepted by the right group. And you never really grow out of it, do you? Nobody wants to be on the outside. And C.S. Lewis has this profound essay where he refers to this dynamic as the inner ring. Lewis says there's two structures that operate in the world. There's the there's two hierarchies. There's the visible one that exists, the formal one. You can go into any organization. There's a formal power structure, an organizational chart. In the army, a general ranks higher than a major, or a corporation, a vice president's higher than a middle manager. But then he says there's another hierarchy that exists in any group and in any culture and any time. It can't be written down, it can't be seen, it can't be published. And it's always changing. He calls this the inner ring, that power of influence, the power structures. And he says, you you almost you know that they exist, but they exist in undefinable ways. You really know they exist when you're on the outside of it, especially. And then later, perhaps you're on the inside and you're not quite sure. How you got on the inside, or how long you're going to last on the inside, because it's never constant. I'll frequently say, I'm not so much concerned about the formal power structures as the informal ones. Who has influence? And Lewis goes on, he says this some tell their spouses that it's a hardship to stay late at the office, or be on a school board, or a committee, or some bit of important extra work because. They and a couple people are the only people holding it together. They're, they're the ones who really know how to run things. And he goes on, he says, they convince themselves and others. What a terrible burden it is to bear that. But how much more terrible if you're left out? It's tiring and unhealthy to lose your Saturday afternoons, but to have them free because you don't matter is much worse. And so here's Jesus preaching to this church in Philadelphia. And he says, you need to believe that if you're going to walk through the doors that I've opened. I know this. I know how inconsequential you feel and you appear. But because you belong to me. You belong to the true and secure inner ring of the kingdom of God. Verse 7. He introduces himself to the church as the holy one, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one will open. He refers again in verse 8 to a door that he has opened for this little church in Throughout the Bible, we've often said the book of Revelation, you really ought to understand the whole of the Bible because John is bringing all of the themes of the Bible and tying together in one final chapter. And in Isaiah chapter 22, the leader of Israel is referred to as the king or the key of David. He was Eliakim. He had the uh, literally the ability to open and close The city of God. And and what Jesus is saying. He's calling that into recollection. And saying this is what I have done for you. I have opened the door of God's kingdom. I have the keys to open and close God's kingdom. The kingdom that is present now and will remain into new heavens and new earth. And he opens the door for God's kingdom for those who belong to him by faith and likewise uses that key to shut the door of God's kingdom for those who reject Him. If you're not a Christian, I want to tell you what Jesus is offering here. He doesn't say to you, I'll tell you how to earn the citizenship to the kingdom of God, where God's power is unleashed and He's making all things new. And once you earn that king, you can come and open the door. He says, no, I've got the key. And I'm not going to tell you how to open it for yourself. I'll unlock it. That's grace. I'm the one who opens and no one will shut. I'm the one who shuts and no one will open. The key belongs to him. And he is the only one who performs a work that opens the kingdom. Or Jesus has these keys and he says, I will do everything necessary to have you accepted by my Father. Vibrant in a satisfying relationship and have God's power of new creation unleashed in your life. In fact, he says, I have opened it. For you language geeks out there, that's in the perfect tense, which means it's an action performed in the past that has consequences presently and into the future. Present consequences. What he's doing is he's looking back at the cross and he says, you see what I've done? In dying the death you deserved to die. In living the life you could not live. I acted as your substitute. And therefore, I have opened for you the kingdom of God. My death, my resurrection has been the doorway into God's inner ring. And any could come. No matter where you've come from, what you've done, what you've left undone. It does not matter. If Jesus' death is a death to sin and the wrath of God, there is no other doorway for us to enter into God's delight and presence. And so you can look back and you say, He's opened the door. And no one else can open it for me. But his opening of it is sufficient and just full of grace. This, by the way, is one of the radical differences at the heart of Christianity. Every other system tells you how to fix or save yourself. Jesus says, I got it. Let me do it for you. And then I'll take those keys that I've earned and I will graciously unlock I know most of us feel overwhelmed and defeated about the call that Jesus can put on your life. These open doors, and you can think to yourself, I, I see the door, I just don't know what to say, I don't know how to enter in. I, don't. I mean, just so easily you look at yourself, you look at, and I think, you know, this is one of the dangers of celebrity Christianity. You look at people who are put on a stage, no pun intended, don't look at this, but you look at people who are put on a stage, you think, how amazingly gifted, God can use them. When a celebrity comes to Christ, like, oh, great, man, now the world's going to really, you know, treasure Jesus. But that's, look at what he says in verse 8. I know what little power you have. I know your works. Before I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power power, dynamite, the ability to. Explode things and change things. I know what little power you have. And yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. It's a meek church. It doesn't have a lot of bells and whistles. It's not terribly gifted. It doesn't have vast resources. But Jesus says, look, you're showing up. You're not showing up in the paper every week. You're showing up in your little works of faithfulness there's not a lot of flash to you social media is not going to explode with your name but i know your weakness don't let that deter you from ministry because jesus prefers to use weak and meek and little things and if you look on the inside you like, i don't want much to offer that should not restrain you from open doors it should compel you I don't have much to offer. I can't wait to see what Jesus is going to do with that. You don't have to be intimidated. Your, your weakness, your spiritual immaturity, your layering lack of abilities are the very things that qualify us for service to Jesus. Our culture values the bold and the brash. But Jesus' kingdom is the upside down. The loudest speaker in the room is often the one who gets the crowd. But Jesus operates in a completely different economy. He always chooses to clothe his power in weakness. Isn't it amazing that John is in prison in a little island out in the middle of the Aegean Sea. And he is writing this great book for us. I know your weakness. D.A. Carson, in his book, The Cross and the Christian Ministry, says this. He says, The world loves power and prestige. God displays himself most tellingly on the cross in sublime and wretched weakness. That's beautiful, sublime. We sung that word today sublime, beautiful, sublime and wretched weakness. Yet that weakness affects God's utterly breathtaking redemptive plan and thus proves stronger than all the world's strength. The world parades its heroes and its gurus, Christians. Remember, God loves to choose the weak and the lowly and the despised, the nobodies, so that no one could boast before him. The world tries to impress with its rhetoric and sophistication, cherishing form more than content, But the followers of Jesus prize truth above style and quietly refuse to endorse any form that may be so attractive that the centrality of the gospel is jeopardized. Ministry, evangelism, parenting, it doesn't matter, it's always messy, you never feel competent. But that is what is essential to keeping the gospel central to our service. Otherwise, Jesus is just slowly eclipsed by our abilities, our strengths, our flesh, our pomp, our strategies, our ingenuity. But when the work that is getting done or the person that's getting done takes more attention than Jesus... We have entered into the kind of idolatry that robs the church of its power. Humble service is our responsibility. Fruitfulness from that service is God's responsibility. I know you're weak, but he commends them. Look, I know you're weak, but this is what's beautiful about you. You've just kind of hung on. You made it in. You did a little work. You have little power, but you've kept my word. You've not denied my name. I often say when people, I'm talking to people, inviting them to Zion, I said, just, just hey, I, I got to give a disclaimer. We're not the flashiest church around. But give us a month and we'll see. And let's talk about how God's power is slowly renewing your life. The Christians in Philadelphia here. We're receiving a kind of resistance from those who considered themselves the Jews in town. They had they had power and were kicking the Christians out of the synagogue. And Jesus doesn't pull any punches. Right? He may be meek, but he is truthful, and he calls them the synagogue of Satan. And he says that they aren't true Jews because if they were true Jews, then they would embrace Jesus. And his people. And so they're receiving some pushback. They have literally been kicked out of every inner ring in town. The Romans won't have anything to do with them. The Jews won't have anything to do with them. Nobody counts them in the inner ring. And to this weak and persecuted church, this is what Jesus says. He offers four stabilizing promises. Victory, safety... Stability and identification. First, he promises them victory. Verse 9. I make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I've loved you. And when you're being mocked for Jesus, you're going to feel like an outsider to the world's inner rings. Let this promise ring in your ears. Don't worry. There will be a day when those inner rings that you have kicked out of will know that I have loved you. The Jews oppose the church, verse 9. And the temptation is, it's going to shut us down. Everyone's turning against us. And we want to say this. You know, most of us are feeling the culture, the world around us. It seems like it's changed in a moment. And we're, we're wondering what's next. What's next is what has been true since Jesus faced this world and since the fall. Opposition will grow. We can either complain or see that as new opportunities for the gospel to be on display. For the world to see how much Jesus loves his people He's opened the door so the gospel will bear fruit. In the midst of opposition, he's promised safety. Verse 11 I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell safely on, who dwell on the earth. And you think of the context in which John, again, he's writing from prison, he's the last living apostle. Every other apostle up to this point has been killed either by the Jews or by the Roman Empire. Peter miraculously, when he faces oppositions, released from Herod's prison. And because the church had prayed, then led by an angel, he, he passed the first and second guard. And they're leading out of the gate of the city. Open The gates literally open for themselves and he walks through. Paul and Barnabas on the first missionary journey travel over land and sea and hill and valley and mountain and swamp... ...and they're abused and hated and stoned and yet give grace to many to win them to Christ. And then they had this explanation. Why do they keep pressing on? They returned to the church in Antioch. They gathered the church together and they report all that God had done. You wouldn't believe what God is doing in the midst of opposition... And how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. We cannot retreat like a turtle into our shell to self protect, but we have to move forward with the protection of Jesus in mission in the world. Verse 10 Because you have kept my word about patient endurance. I will keep you from the hour of trial that's coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. And again, he's the last living apostle. He certainly doesn't mean, I'm going to keep you safe in this world. He knows that's not true because he's not safe. What he means the hour of trial is, I will protect you from the judgment to come. And then he gives him another motivation in verse 11. I'm coming soon. The Bible always speaks about Jesus' second coming as this imminent reality. (laughs) No one knows the day or the hour or even the son of the father. Only the father knows for the sake of God's people. The father shortened that time before the son returns. And so whatever trial that you're going through, whatever opportunity you're in, whoever's pushing you out of their inner ring because of the gospel... You can remind yourself, Jesus is coming soon. He's going to save me from that trial. But this inner ring, unless they come to faith and repentance, not so much. That inner ring cannot protect them from the trial of God's judgment that is to come. Only Jesus can. He's open doors for you to come in, for your neighbors to come in. And when he comes, he will give you a crown. Again, that's the upside-down kingdom. In this life, you will experience trials. You'll be mocked. But in the new heavens and new earth, those who are put down and kicked out will become kings and queens. Seek humility now because your exaltation as is as sure as Jesus' exaltation. Not on your shoulders, son. He's already won. And become a servant now because you'll look like a king in the world to come. Thirdly, he promises them stability. Verse 12, the one who conquers, I'll make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Philadelphia, this is an interesting reference. Because Philadelphia was a, is a crazy, unstable city built on many fault lines, known for being destroyed at least two different occasions by an earthquake. The ancient historian Strabo said that Philadelphia was a city that was just full of earthquakes. So for a people who knew the instability of the ground and of this world, Jesus is offering them a permanent place in the most stable place. He's going to make them pillars in the temple of my God, a permanent place that no one shall ever go out of. And then verse 12, he promises identification. He promises to write on the one who conquers a series of of names my god the city of my god and his own new name we have this general sense don't we that name equals identity for instance you might talk about your reputation as your name or your family's reputation as our family name name equals identity it's a search for dignity and honor and in a broader way we we get this that uh, you know, travel, when you travel abroad to have your name written in a blue U.S. passport um, gives you access to tremendous protection and freedoms and rights. Even when you are in foreign land, it grants you access back into this country. A privilege that somebody who doesn't have a passport isn't as easily afforded. You don't have to sneak in. Because you've been given the name of Jesus. It's written on you, and it's a greater name than you could find in any place else or even earn for yourself. I've written on you my name, the city of my God, a new name. You are not defined by what you do in this world, but what I have done. And when my name is written on you, not only do you have access into God's presence, but you have access to to all of the rights and privileges of the kingdom of God and there is no shortage there of power. There's an episode of the Andy Griffith show where Andy's out of town and he puts Barney Fife in charge. Based on premise, you know this is going. Barney decides that he's going to deputize the local mechanic, Gomer. And the two deputies go walking around town. They're all big and bold. And until one evening, someone notices that in light of Andy's absence, someone is robbing the bank. They hide behind a car. And when they're afraid and they don't know what to do, Gomer looks at Barney and says, We need to call the police. In An utter and fearful realization. Barney shouts back, "We are the police." <laughs> Let's quit pointing fingers at the world and hiding. Instead, walk into the open doors because we have the hope of Jesus and the power of His name, and belong to the One who opens and shuts. And who opens and no one can shut and shut and no one who can open. Because he promises that the one will conquer. I will make a pillar in my city. He shall never go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem. Which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. We are the people. We are the people who have the gospel. We are the people this world needs. Let's pray. Lord, I would confess that my love for the inner ring so paralyzes me at times and has kept me from walking through open doors with the good news of the gospel. I know I'm not the only one in this room. Make us bold and courageous and full of faith and trusting in you. May we, be, may we be even just slightly more faithful. Trusting that fruitfulness is your responsibility. Faithfulness is ours. Help us to be faithful. For we pray this in your name, our Savior. Amen.